Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Tope Falaran, who is a novel, a particular kind of black man. This is the first novel, but won the 2013 Kane Prize for African Writing for the short story Miracle. Born in Ogden, Utah, and raised after the age of 14 in Grand Prairie, Texas, which means that a particular kind of black man is kind of about Tope Falaran, even though it's not about Tope Falaran. Is that kind of accurate? I think that is. So interesting you say that. There have been a number of conversations of late about like this kind of new trend around autofiction. A number of writers are writing explicitly from their lives or they're augmenting in some ways what happened in their lives. And there was this book that came out uh, that was released by a guy named David Shields a couple years ago called Reality Hunger that inspired a lot of folks to write, you know, um, to, to kind of render reality in their work. So I think I'm interested in that tradition as well. Well, I know David Shields. I've co- interviewed him a couple of times. Wonderful. And he's yeah. trying to explore the region's the borders of fiction, nonfiction. He once told me to write a book about all my interviews, the introduction to the interview and what happens afterward, and then just leave out the interview. I think that's a brilliant idea. You know, the reason why I'm so intrigued by this is that, and it has to do in some ways with my book as well. I mean, people are really, and I say people, I mean a lot of folks in the West in particular, are just really committed to category. And fiction has to remain inviolable as well as nonfiction. And I'm writing about a character who's kind of uh, traveling back and forth between the realm of the real and the unreal in certain important ways. And I thought that in order to write a book that really captured that experience, you have I had to write a book that in some ways captures um, that movement between fiction and nonfiction as well. I don't think I can write an accurate kind of depiction of this character without committing to that experience. Is this the reason why it took so many years to write the book? (laughs) I had to learn how to write the book, to be honest. That took some time. I'm obsessed with the craft and thinking about structure and other things. And I had this kind of big idea for what I wanted the book to be. Um, I've just described some of that now, you know, sort of a book that was unafraid of traveling that line between fiction and nonfiction, a book that is in some ways explicitly autobiographical and a book that also has its own concerns, and a book that is also interested in rendering reality and also questioning reality as well. That was something that was very important to me. The question for me is, how do I create a form? How do I create a kind of structure that's capacious enough to hold fiction and nonfiction, reality and the opposite of reality, whatever that may be. So that was a primary concern for me as I was crafting this. Well, we're going to get into some of the details about the writing process for you as a first-time novelist. Yeah. This book is really about what it's like to be Nigerian-American as opposed to African-American in quotes. Yes, Growing up in essentially a white environment yes. in the West yes. and having to deal with being different from the wider society 
as well as different from the smaller society. Exactly, yeah. Makes it very, very hard to even attempt to fit in. Yeah, because there are no models. I think something that happens for many of us is that we're kind of born in a particular context and you're raised in that context and you are able to kind of, from the cues that you get from your from your elders and from your peers even, you kind of begin to get a sense of how you're meant to conduct yourself and the kind of person you're supposed to be. Most people have an option. They can say either like, I'm going to conform to the norms that kind of predominate around me or I'm going to reject those norms, you know, but there's at least a kind of foundation upon which you can build or refuse to build, right? For a character like this who grows up in a context that has no conception of who he is or where he emerges from or the kind of person he's meant to be, it's an incredibly difficult space to inhabit for him. When you say him, yeah. are you also saying for that particular context, you? Yeah, sure. I think that certainly applies to me as well. And if I'm speaking about myself, uh, when I was growing up in Utah, I didn't have the slightest idea how to construct a sense of self. Um, well, you also weren't a Mormon, right? We weren't Mormons, no. And my father had come to America because he, you know, he's a really ambitious person. He had the sense that he could truly achieve his ambitions here in this country. And he arrives in America as kind of unprepared for this social context that he finds himself in. And as he's raising his children, he's raising them to be Nigerians, basically. He's a Nigerian, and that's that's what he's comfortable with. That's what he knows. That's what he trusts, that kind of cultural background. And he wants his children to have the same kind of cultural understanding. Of course, they're growing up in a context that thinks about Nigeria in a very different way. In reality, you have one sister, three brothers. Yes. In the book, you have one brother and, for a while, two stepbrothers. Why did you choose to not have a girl there? Well, because I think part of what's happening to Tunde is that he has a really twisted and complicated relationship with women. So his biological mother, I'm not giving much away when I say this, at the beginning of the book, has a kind of crisis, a mental crisis, and and subsequently leaves the country. And then he has a stepmother who steps in, and then she leaves. The one strong connection that he has to, uh, to Nigeria and perhaps even to womanhood, if you will, is this, he has a series of conversations with his grandmother over the course of the of the book. And so I kind of wanted to focus on his really difficult relationship with femininity. And as I was kind of proceeding with the book, I I wanted to focus too on the relationship between Tunde and his brother Tayo and how initially they are the same, but as time passes, they begin to grow apart in certain ways. So that was a decision I made as as a writer. And perhaps in the next book, we'll kind of extend (laughs) that. But I thought it made sense for this book. It was kind of weird when I was reading the New York Times review, which kind of said, oh, the women aren't as developed. I'm thinking the entire book. Yeah is pretty much about everything from a boy's perspective, and there are very few women in his life, and that's the point. Yeah, though that's precisely it, and I (laughs) I saw that as well, and I said, okay, well, (laughs) it's an interesting take. That's the wonderful thing about, you know, like, writing work and having people evaluate it, you know, like, she's obviously reading that from her perspective, and that's something that she looks for in her work, and I'm not the first writer who's been accused of that, so that's, you know, it wasn't my intention. She's talking about a book that she would like to read that isn't a particular kind of black man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. However, Tope, there are a lot of elements that are very specifically autobiographical and some that aren't. Yeah. So let me throw a few out. Did your father run a ice cream truck or is that fiction? He did, yeah. He did? Yeah. Did you sit in the car and with your with your siblings and let some food melt so that you could get the better... 
yes, ice cream. <laughs> yes, that did happen. Yeah. That did happen. Yeah. So that part of the story is real. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And the moving around is real, but the cities are different. Cities are different and we didn't move around as, as often. And um, of course, you have a mother and father. Yes. So that part is different. I do have a mother who I, my biological mother is uh, in Nigeria right now. So there's certainly a component of truth in that. It's so funny. I was just reading a review of Ben Lerner's work. And I, I think he's somebody who has kind of focused on his life, you know, throughout his fiction and kind of explicitly draws from it. So when I sit down and, and start thinking about the kind of stories that I want to write, I think there's something that's deeply important, at least in my experience that I want to write about. And so that even if it starts from an autobiographical place, I'm interested in rendering that certainly for folks to, to interact with. But there are other parts as well that don't accord with that at all. So, Well, you also, just as Tunde went to Morehouse College, sure. just as Tunde wound up an exchange student in Maine, mm -hmm. Tunde does not go to Cape Town, which we'll talk about, because yeah. you did. Yeah. So there are those similarities. One of the things, though, that connects it is that, in a way, even if the situation is different, Tunde is still looking out through Topi's eyes. I'm not sure if that's quite accurate. Really? Um, yeah. Part of what happens at the second part of the book is that at a certain point, Tunde is at Morehouse College, and he says, you know what, I can't trust my past because he's having a series of what he describes as double memories. Um, and he's afraid that he is succumbing to whatever it is that his mother succumbed to earlier in the book. And so at an explicit point in the book, he says, well, since I can no longer trust my past, I'm going to sit down and, as it were, write my future, write about the kind of future that I want to inhabit. And so that's what he does. And so the stuff that happens afterwards is him kind of attempting to order reality in a way that makes sense for him. I don't have double memories, and this could very well be the case, but I don't, I'm, unless I didn't sit down and imagine, you know, write down me having this interview with you, right? So, like, right. that's not something that I, that I did. But I think it's a useful, he does, even after, after that point, like, there are certain similarities between my life and his life, obviously. But it's different because from his perspective, he is trying desperately to create a reality that he can inhabit because he is determined that the reality he currently in inhabits has no space for him. He meets a girl, for example, that's named Noel at a certain part of the book. And before then, he talks about the fact that he's obsessed with Lauren Hill, who's somebody that I also have great admiration for. It just so happens that Lauren Hill's middle name is Noel, Lauren Noel Hill. And he introduces his girlfriend, Noel, by saying, uh, now the joy of my world is in Noel. Now, that's very important because that's a lyric from The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. If I walked into a certain room now and said, I woke up, got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head, people would instantly know what I'm talking about. Right. Right. Uh, a Day in the Life by the Beatles. And so I think for my generation, now the joy of my world operates in, in much the same way. And I think that certain people who read that will kind of be attuned to the fact that there's something different that's happening here, which is to say that um, Tunde has had this obsession with uh, Lauren Hill, and now he's dating a woman called Noel that he introduces by citing this lyric. So in some ways, again, he's trying to create the kind of world that he would like to inhabit. He's, he's up to that point, and we talked about this earlier, he's not had much experience with women. Right. So the question becomes... What does the ideal woman look like for, for Tunde? And that's what he begins to grapple with. Was there a, a similar situation for you when you got up to Bates? My wife's name is not Noel, and I kind of write her into existence. <laughs> D but did no. you meet her there? I did meet my wife there, yeah. Okay. But it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't happen the way that it happened in the book. And I, again, that's why 
I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I understand if people want to. Like, it's it's interesting. I'm I'm really intrigued by the fact that people are so intrigued by the autobiographical components of my book. But that's because when one writes a memoir, yeah, right, yeah, one assumes certain things. These things happened, or sure. these things. If they didn't happen, their memory issues. You know, they're kind of me- it's a memory play in a way. Yeah. Uh, and if you're writing fiction, then it could be based on material. For instance, Salman Rushdie's most recent novel, which is sort of a takeoff on Don Quixote, yeah. takes a lot of elements from Salman's real life. Yeah. Okay. But it's clearly not that. But Tunde was born when you were born, lived in similar places where you lived, yeah. had similar incidents, such as the ice cream truck. Yeah. So that then people say, well, What's fiction and what's not? Now we go to David Shields or we go to, say, uh, Amos Oz's memoir that isn't a memoir. Yeah. And when I talked to him about it, he said, well, it's my genetic memory. Yeah, right, whatever. It's fiction. People want to know well, what it is. Yeah. What's real? What's not? I don't think that matters as much. You mentioned a few writers. Philip Roth writes explicitly from his life for much of his career. Right. Beginning with uh, um, his first book, which was a collection of shorts and a novella at the end. Throughout his life, he's drawing explicitly from his life when he's writing. Same with John Updike. He writes explicitly from his life as well. There, there's a, a long and proud tradition in this country of people writing from their lives. And and I think part of this, I hope you'll forgive me uh, if I'm going down a tributary here, but I think part of this is that when Updike or Roth or, or others of that, or even I mentioned before, there's an entire kind of autofiction movement that's happening right now. So you have people like Ben Lerner, Rachel Cusk, Sheila Hetty, who are sort of, side, I mean, they're writing explicitly from life, right? Like if you read a book by Sheila Hetty, it's obvious that, you know, these experiences have happened to her. Rachel Cusk just concluded a trilogy of books that are drawn from her life as well. But there's no question about the fact that they're novels. Why is that the case? Well, novel is a work of art. And it, it still, for whatever reason, has a kind of pristine and beautiful place in our society. There's a sense that if you've created a novel, you've created a shining work of art wholly from imagination. And even for people who are writing explicitly from their lives, there's not that kind of question. I've been to a number. I'm an obsessive reader, and I go to a lot of readings as well. I've gone to a number of readings that, have, uh, that Cusk has given in D.C., and others as well. And there's not that kind of interrogation of like what's true and what isn't. And I think part of why that is the case is because she's Rachel Cusk. She's writing fiction. Whatever she writes is fiction. But I think for other writers, and especially sometimes for writers of color, I think there's that question begins to come up. And I think part of it may be that there's a sense that this writerly kind of novelistic space is a very, it's a separate space. It's, it's a higher space, if you will. And only certain people can ascend to that level. And and so if one person is writing from life who happens to look like me and has my history and trajectory, there's a the question that perhaps is simmering beneath a lot of the queries about whether this actually qualifies as fiction, whether this is actually a piece of art or not. And well, I think that's something that, that I think about all the time. So, I mean, I'd be asking these questions because this is an interview and what am I going to ask? Of course, yeah. But beyond that, I'd probably be probing in a similar manner, say, if it was your fourth novel and at that point having written three novels that are clearly not based on your life in the same way, we'd be looking at this one maybe a little differently. But I'm not sure if I would as an interviewer because that's sort of what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, it's what I'm doing whether I'm talking to you 
or to another novelist, but it's the first book, mm -hmm. and therefore we look at the history in a slightly different way. Sure. Part of it, I think, is because underneath a particular kind of black man is a very specific kind of viewing of America. Yeah. And it's a viewing of America that only somebody who was African, it doesn't necessarily have to be Nigerian, yeah. but African coming to America or being born in America and being displaced yeah. immediately, yeah. that person is going to have a very specific perspective. Yeah. And in that sense, the perspective between Tope and Tunde is not going to be that different. That's an excellent point, and I'm glad you raised that. Because I, one of the books that I read a lot, I mentioned this book before, is Goodbye Columbus by Philip Roth. He was writing at a moment when part of what differentiated him from a lot of his contemporaries is that he was unafraid of writing about like his community, Newark, New Jersey, circa sort of mid-20th century, and he's writing. But he's still writing about a community, right? So a number of people who read his work can say, uh, well, he's writing about a very particular Jewish community in, uh, in Newark, New Jersey, in the middle of the 20th century, and this is what they experienced. And even as he continues with his career, he's writing about, yeah, and it, it gets very kind of specific. He's writing about a writer who is, uh, you know, in his middle age, who right. is having all kinds of issues, and he's still writing from that perspective. The difference between that and, and me is that I am writing about a very, if you will, particular experience, about a very particular person. And I recognize that too. I recognize that it's a very unique story and that a number of people will say, well, just write a memoir then. But part of, I think, why this is interesting is that I'm, tr I'm really trying to dig into the universal experience. And I'm one of those people who's convinced that if a human being, whatever they, wherever they come from, whatever experience they have, if they write from the deepest part of themselves, that they're essentially writing about the human condition. And part of what I'm inviting my readers to do is to say, well, yes, this might seem like a very kind of uh, unique experience that this person has had that only applies to this person and uh, we're essentially reading this journey. But what I'm inviting my reader to do is to kind of say, well, what hap what's happening within yourself that well, might accord with what's happening to this character in the book? Well, you're creating an empathy. Yes, that's what I'm hoping to do. Right. Right? Because part of what's happening, too, is that Tunde, he doesn't believe in his reality in the end. Like, that's what the book's about. I know a number of people focus on, oh, there's a black kid growing up in Utah, or this is about, like, a Nigerian-American who's not quite African-American. I think those are important themes. So part of what he's saying is, like, my reality doesn't make sense for me. Like, I can't. I can't make sense or heads or tails of this. It's an experience that a lot of people are having in the 21st century because one, we're breaking away from the kind of common perception of what reality is, which is to say you're born in a, with a particular body and that's who you are the rest of your life and you are meant to be in, let's say, uh, a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And, and, and so this is the way that we've kind of constructed our society. And, and now we inhabit an era in which people are saying, well, you know, I might be born in a particular sex, but my gender is different. I have a different gender expression. I'm not attracted to people of the opposite sex. And so there are a number of people who are having to navigate new spaces for themselves, even in this reality that says it has to be this way. It's this way or, or nothing. And so people are creating pockets of new uh, realities and new existences for, the, for themselves. And that's what Tunde has to do. And the reason why I think it is a universal story is that he doesn't have a roadmap for that experience, right? Unlike Philip Roth, uh, who's writing about a Philip Roth-like character in 1950s uh, sort of Newark, New Jersey, 
who is growing up with other Jewish Americans in that context, Tunda doesn't have a roadmap out of this. So he has to create one for himself. What he decides to do is to create art that captures the kind of experience that he would like to inhabit. And part of what I'm arguing is that art can be a way of constructing realities in this incredibly oppressive reality that many of us inhabit that wasn't constructed for the likes of us. While it's Tunde in the novel, it's also Tope in real life. The distinction blurs. And again... And I want it. I'm glad it it blurs. Yes, precisely. Because I think that's part of a new movement, I think. I think it's something important that's happening. Like... I am not somebody who's committed to category in the way that some of my forebears are or have been. I am not at all. The idea is to punch a hole. Punch through it. Yeah, completely. One of my favorite artists is a, a wonderful poet named Tomas Tronstromer who constantly talks about like sort of he doesn't believe too in the kind of strict line of demarcation between reality and unreality. The experience that you had in reading the book and thinking about me versus the character is the experience that a number of people have had with me. You know, they see me and phenotypically, I suppose you could say, I am a black man. But then we begin to have a conversation. They think, well, you don't have the typical black experience. What are you? Like, where are you coming from? What, who, who are you? So I'm happy if people have that same experience with the book because the book is an expression of that idea that it's okay to inhabit like a kind of middle space in the way that I do in the world, which is to say I'm fiercely proud of being a person of color, a black person. But I also am fiercely proud of the background that I have as well and, and how that contributes to who I am today. Do you um, see yourself as a Utah at all? I think it's a core part of who I am, yeah. What I vividly remember about growing up in Utah was, one, the Wasatch Mountains were such a kind of massive and ethereal presence in my life. And I missed them profoundly when we moved to Texas because they were kind of presiding over everything, right? And Texas is much flatter than Utah is, obviously. And sure. so I miss that kind of physical presence of Utah. The second thing is that I did grow up in an environment that was alienating and that didn't have much time didn't seem to have much time for the likes of me. That said, there were a number of teachers I had who would take me during the weekend to museums, who would give me extra books at the end of a class day, who took an active interest in my development. There's this really beautiful kind of community in Utah that believes that if you are a member of the community, even if you're not like as I was, you're not a Mormon, you're not white, that there's still something about this kind of American experience that can apply to you as well. Did you find yourself say having more in common, let's say, with a Jewish person in Utah than, say, even an American, African-American? It's a great question. Perhaps. If the African-American in Utah is growing up in a community of African-Americans, then then yes, and the Jewish person is, is not. Is not. Then yes, there would be more of an association with that because we're both like profoundly alienated from our milieu. But if the African-American is there by herself or himself, then perhaps there are, are points of... Um, sort of similarity between us. When you were growing up, you read a lot of science fiction? A lot. Obsessively. <laughs> Obsessively. Yes. You you yes. mentioned before we went on you were Trekkie. Yes. I felt alienated as a kid. I read lots of science fiction too. Do you yeah. think that, that, that there's some kind of element there? Yes, I do. Connection? Can you go into that a little? A couple of things. One, I think that a lot of science fiction stories and fantasy stories as well are about like uh, a hero who emerges from, you know, so like difficult circumstances and doesn't have things going for them. And the heroine or the hero kind of gets what they need from their environment and then leaves and goes on some kind of journey and achieves great things. I think I related to that that kind of idea. I, I was obviously pining for that experience myself. Who were your writers that you liked? I read 
let's see, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, which is ironic for many reasons to consider. Well, he's a Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, gosh, that book was important to me when I was young. That was a very important book to me. Ursula K. Le Guin had a series of books about Earthsea that were very, very, very important to me. I first read them when I was in the fourth grade, read them again and again and again as time passed. I also read a lot of uh, fantasy, so Terry Brooks was somebody that I, I loved. Uh, obviously, J.R.R. Tolkien was somebody that I returned to time and again. I watched a lot of Star Trek, uh, specifically The Next Generation. I looked up to Picard. Picard for Jean-Luc Picard was a guy that I, I wanted to emulate. It's so funny. If you had cornered me in, in the fourth or fifth grade and asked me where I wanted to go, I would have said I want to go to Starfleet. Like I thought that <laughs> Starfleet, to me, seemed like a kind of heaven. Because it was a place that people from all over the universe, the best and the brightest, kind of converge on this space. And they're kind of maximizing their potential. And they're learning how to be ambassadors for their respective races, right? And so I, I wanted to serve in that, that role as well. And I was fortunate enough to win a Rhodes Scholarship when I graduated from college. And as I, was look, as I was looking back, I thought like, well, this is in a way my own version of Starfleet Academy because we, a number of people from around the world are converging at Oxford and we're having all kinds of conversations and then we kind of re- return to our respective homes. And so in a way, like it made perfect sense for me that I applied for the roads because I was still in the back of my mind thinking about Starfleet Academy. Your early writing, your earliest writing, was it science fiction or fantasy? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. It's a really astute observation. <laughs> And I'm still reading a lot of science fiction. And, you know, there is a part of me that wants to write science fiction that's deeply interested because I think we're at a crisis point in the world. So the other thing that science fiction does is that it imagines a future, like Star Trek, for example. Star Trek imagines a future where there is no more poverty, where people aren't as obsessed with, like, accumulating capital at the expense of everything else, where there are other kind of values that have come to the fore, where, in essence, humanity has grown up. We are now at an inflection point where the world is inviting us, the environment is inviting us to grow up, to move beyond, to think beyond borders, to work together to surmount the challenges that that we face. And Star Trek is on the other side of that journey. Like, okay, there was a crisis. Somehow humanity managed to make it. So it's a, it's a, it, it kind of strikes a hopeful note as well. It says that even in the midst of this kind of, you know, sort of tragedy, that there is a, a path forward and we can make it together. On the other hand, um, the dystopian worlds. I've certainly taken over film yes, and even television with uh, Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale yep. and its sequel. Yes. So that's, that's fighting against it too. Yeah. It's an expression of how we feel because we all have these thoughts. I, I was just talking with my, my wife the other day and we were talking about the fact that I suppose you could say I've always been a bit scared about this kind of environmental crisis that's happening. But when we had our child two years ago, like it became even more real to us in a way that Perhaps it wasn't before. And I was interrogating that because I, I said it should have been this kind of real for us beforehand. The reason why it's it's something that we're even more concerned with now is because we have a child who will inhabit the world that, you know, this world that perhaps will be broken if we don't get get on with it in a way. And in a, in a kind of way, that kind of speaks to a lack of empathy. And I think that's something that we have to think about as well. Like this idea that you don't really care about something unless you're kind of personally involved or personally invested in some way. And that's another way that as as a group of people, as a species, we can grow is to begin to value other experiences, even if they don't directly relate, relate to ours. I, I want to pursue some of that, but it occurred to me, and I've talked with a number of American, African-American men yes. who all had the talk yes. with their sons. Yes. A talk that I didn't necessarily have to have as a privileged white guy. Yeah. 
Did you get that talk from your dad? I did get the talk, yeah. And I got many versions of the talk, not just about the police, but about like just being in society. About like, I remember a talk that my dad gave me. Uh, I came home and my teacher gave me a B. My dad was one of these typical immigrant parents who uh, was really upset if I brought home anything lower than an A and I would get grounded and get in big trouble for it. So I brought home this very rare B. And my dad said, why did you get the B? And I said, well, I had this back and forth with my teacher about something. Um, and my dad said, don't ever question your teacher. And I was surprised by that because my fellow students were questioning the teacher all the time. There was a kind of back and forth. Is that a Nigerian thing then? I don't think that's a Nigerian thing. It could very well be. But I think even if it is, it becomes more powerful in this context because part of what he's saying is that just take it. Don't don't push back. Well, the, the other question about that would concern your parents, um, obviously your grandparents, who grew up in a colonial world. Mm -hmm. I mean, does colonialism play any role, do you think, down to your generation? It could. It could in terms of living in this society that, again, wasn't constructed for your benefit. And in order to survive in that society, you have to conform, basically. That's what the talk is about in, in many important ways. It's, it's, it's basically saying that this society was not created for your benefit. And if you want to succeed and thrive, you have to kind of exist within these lines. So I got the talk. But I think as I grew older, I became upset about the fact that I had to listen, that I had to hear a talk. Because part of what the talk is transmitting to the to the child as well, the, the black boy who will become a black man, is that you can't really spread your wings, right? Like you have to remain tethered to the ground. There's a kind of book that is really popular. It's the kind of book that it's about a black boy who grows up in really dire straits and everything's going and, you know, like their parents are poor. And at some point, somebody smiles on this black boy. He's able to go to like some really great prep school or something else. And then all of a sudden, he becomes a success. He writes the memoir. And the memoir sells lots of copies. And people say, and part of the reason why that happens is because it's society saying that if you kind of adhere to this path, if you take these steps, you, can, you too can be successful. It's the kind of solution that's not really interested in deep structural change, but the kind mm -hmm. of solution that says that if you, yeah, things might be bad now, but if you really study hard, somebody might smile on you. you it's might conservative. Just, it's very conservative. Yeah. And I'm opposed, uh, not to that experience. Many of my friends have had that experience. And I think they're incredible people who've surmounted a great deal. And I am proud of them. And I think they are, they are to be kind of held aloft of, as examples. And that's great. I'm more interested in that structural response that accounts for the humanity of every person. And the talk is about saying to certain people that you can't truly be a full human being because the talk says, hey, if you want to run on the street and just kind of laugh and scream like kids do, you can't do that because you might get in trouble. So it's basically circumventing an incredibly important part of the human experience, childhood being a teenager and getting into things that you shouldn't be. That's a teenage experience that like teenagers across the world have. But if you're a black boy and black girl growing up in the society, part of what your parents are telling you is that, no, you can't have that experience. So if you want to survive and you want to thrive, you can't have that. So part of what my book is about is, again, about a character who says, like, I reject that. And he doesn't do it intentionally. Like, it's not a, a conscious decision. He does this out of a need to survive. His mind is rebelling against him. But part of what his grandmother says to him is that, it's okay. Like, it's funny that we've had this conversation before about, like, what's real and what's not. He has this crisis as well. And at a certain point in the book, Tunda asks his grandmother, like, is something wrong with me? And she says, embrace this experience. Like, it, it doesn't have to be bad. It can be something that's good. And so he creates for himself a kind of space where he can be fully himself. And, I, and I'm, I'm holding that as a, as a solution to my readers, many of whom will be experiencing similar things. I'm saying that you can create your own experience that has space for someone like you. I think that has to be a solution. Tope Filarin, 
plays, film? Have you ever thought about screenplays, writing theater? I have, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that. I love theater. I go to more than my fair share of plays. I am obsessed with cinema. One of my great uh, sort of the patrons, my pa- personal patron saints, is a guy named Abbas Kiristami, the great Iranian filmmaker. Sure. I love his work, especially, and I, I, I feel bad kind of talking about one film in particular that's influenced me because I think his entire filmography is pretty amazing. But he did a film called Certified Copy in 2010. It was the first film that he uh, did outside of Iran. He did it in France, stars Juliette Vinoche. And it's about what we've been discussing in a way. Certified copy is this idea. One of the protagonists is asking, it doesn't make make a difference if you regard a painting that's real or a copy of that painting, like especially if you derive the kind of same feelings from experiencing that painting. And the film itself kind of hovers on that line between reality and unreality in a very interesting way. And so... That was the film that I returned to again and again as I was writing this book. I say that just to say that I obviously, and Terrence Malick is somebody else I deeply admire, and I've watched a lot of his films, and I think he's a tremendous kind of artist. And so if I could work in that tradition, then I would, you know, that would be the bee's knees for me. So. Sounds like you probably have a subscription to the Criterion I channel. absolutely do. Of course. Have, of yes, course. I do. <laughs> One thing that Tunde doesn't do that yeah. you did is spend time in South Africa. Yeah. In this sense, more an observer rather than a participant because you're an American in South Africa and you have a different cultural background in America. Is it the same for being black? Is there a difference in how you're treated and how people treat each other in South Africa versus Utah, Texas, even here? I, that's a really good question. Um, I, so I went to South Africa because, uh, you know, like many sort of, I'm sure, African immigrant families in America, there was this great moment when Nelson Mandela was uh, released from prison in the early 90s. And I remember quite vividly, like, sitting in front of the television when that happened and my dad being so excited about it and saying, you know, here's a great African leader. And because my dad was so moved by that experience, I became interested in South Africa and started reading a great deal about it. So in college, I had this chance to go. And I was interested in kind of that post-apartheid moment. Mandela became president in, I believe, 1994. And there was also a bunch of folk in South Africa also kind of wrote this new constitution. That's a very progressive constitution. And so I was interested in seeing how South African society was ordering itself in this kind of post-apartheid, and one could call it, I suppose, a Mandela moment. And so I went in 2002 and what I discovered was that the kind of rigid lines that had exi- that I'd read about still existed. So lines, the class lines were profound, you know, like a very small cadre of people who were doing incredibly well and then the masses below who weren't. I suppose one difference was that there were some black people who were doing better, but they, for whatever reason, were committed to that status quo, partly because they were making lots and lots and lots of money and they weren't, I suppose, very interested in, in spreading that wealth. And then the kind of racial lines still existed between you know, sort of African, if you will. So that's kind of Kosa and Zulu. And then colored South Africans, which is a different category altogether, one we don't necessarily acknowledge here in the States. That's a kind of, you know, kind of mixed race experience. And then white, but then even within the white, there's the kind of Boer and the, or the uh, kind of uh, English experience. And then Indians as well. It's a society that has all these cleavages within it and that are very apparent even to an outsider coming in. And I think for the first few weeks I was there, I had difficulty navigating that space because I wasn't quite aware. I mean, 
even if I, you know, had always felt this kind of alien, sense of alienation in the States, like I kind of knew where I'm supposed to fit in. And I didn't necessarily have that sense in uh, South Africa, partly because I'm coming with this American passport and my American accent. These mark me as someone who's from America, from the West. And so that's a part of my identity that I carry to South Africa. But then again, I have a Nigerian name. Nigerians aren't necessarily always celebrated in South Africa. Just a couple of weeks ago, a number of Niger- Nigerians were expelled from South Africa. I think the thing that I get, got from that was that I, for the first time, I started thinking about the way that other people might see me and how about the identity that I had constructed intentionally or not. It's very different than, say, if you were in Paris or Hawaii, where yeah. basically you're just an American. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's a question about how are you committed to what we've gone through this experience here? Are you different? Are you, are you a part of this movement? Are you opposed to the movement? There's a kind of sussing out that happens. Tope Falorin, a particular kind of black man has now been published. Are you working on another novel? I am. I've been on tour for the past couple months, so I have to admit that I haven't been writing as much as I would like. But I look forward to that moment when uh, I can get back to my desk and begin to write uh, at length again. You've been listening to an interview with Tope Falarin, whose novel is titled A Particular Kind of Black Man. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.